0: This time, Matthew Steele will bring our sermon. Who is Jesus, part two? A close personal friend. I am looking for Benjamin. Where's he at? Oh, there he is. All right, you ready? Come on up. So, I asked Benjamin to help me out today. And... uh, When I mentioned it to him, you know, after the deer in the headlights look went away, he said yes. This past week, he and Joseph have been uh, going to vacation Bible school. And uh, the theme of the week was discover, decide, and defend. And the kids were, they were recruited as secret agents, secret agents of God, discovering the truth about Jesus about who he really is and how to defend and to share with everyone what they believe. And he had great motivation to do so because if he learned this particular scripture, he would obtain secret spy glasses. (laughs) With mirrors. With mirrors. (laughs) These secret spy glasses make it impossible for mom and dad to creep up behind him. Isn't that right? Uh-huh. So he can finally have eyes in the back of his head like I do. So, But he's going to, uh, he's going to tell us his scripture. Are you ready? Okay. Say it loud. But. but honor the Messiah as the Lord in your hearts. Always be ready to to. to to give a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you. Awesome. Good job. (laughs) Thank you, Benjamin. This is a day of friends. It's a day of friends for me because of the message that I've been given to bring today. But it's also a day, as we've already heard, of absent friends. Friends that have recently moved on, are sleeping, preparing, or God is preparing for them a place when we'll see them again. I don't know if you realize, but today I was also not supposed to be here at this time, because Ray Kerr was supposed to be giving the message today. And I wish he was here to do that. I debated about mentioning this, but I just thought I would share with you, and some of you have already heard this before, but just after the Super Sabbath weekend, Ray sent an email, we were emailing back and forth, and some, some folks had... Thank the worship team for the music, and I was sharing that with the team. And Ray responded to that with an email that I will always keep. He said, Matt, we are called to do good works, not under a bushel, but so men can see. Whatsoever we do, do it with all of our might, to edify, admonish, encourage. It has been an honor helping in your efforts. God gets the glory. Live long and prosper. (laughs) We are praying for you, for your family, for our trip that was coming up at that time. And he said, I hope to see you soon, Ray. And for him, he's going to say, where have you guys been? (laughs) So we will see him. So I just wanted to share that because that's been on my heart as as I've been thinking about this message, this particular service. Peter, as Benjamin read to us, charges us to honor the Messiah as Lord in your hearts, in our hearts. Always be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that's in you. Why do you have this hope? Why do you have this hope that you will see your friends that are not here again? Why do you have this hope and this faith in Jesus? Peter challenges us to be ready, to be prepared, to give a reason for why we have this hope, sometimes in in the face of all other logic. We still have this hope. Can you tell someone that you honor the Messiah in your heart? Can we? Do we honor Jesus in our heart? Can we explain how this translates into hope? Can we share that? Do we have the tools? Do we have the words? Do we have the information about Jesus, so that we can share this hope? Can we defend the hope that we have? Peter says we need to be ready. We need to be ready. And the assumption is that if we need to be ready, it's because there will be a test, right? But we need to prepare for a time and a place. And we've all experienced that in our Christian walk but we can't sit on on our laurels, we have to continue to be able to give a defense. I think it is impossible to do all of this unless we know Jesus. It's logical, right? I have to know a person, I have to know about a person, I have to know their likes and dislikes, in in order to share with another who they are, what they're about, the substance of their character. We must look deeper, we must learn of him and continue to learn of him so that we can defend him, defend our belief in him. Of course, we don't have to be scholars, we don't have to have a degree in theology, we don't have to be spiritual giants. We really just need to know what he says, what he said, and what he continues to say to us now. Because, of course, he is alive now and living with us. For us today, I hope that we could just maybe revisit a few scriptures, scriptures that we're very familiar with, and look at it in a deeper light. Maybe look at a deeper way and find out more about Jesus. In John 15 and verse 12, Jesus says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no man than this, than he lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all things that I heard from my father I have made known to you. We're familiar with this passage. We, we remember it every year. We read this passage every year, Passover time. <laughs> but it's an incredible passage. If you stop and consider The ramifications of what Jesus is saying to these disciples. Because he opened the door to a new type of relationship. A new type of relationship. At least as far as they were concerned. If you remember, in my last message titled, Who is Jesus? We talked about the great I Am. We talked about Jesus being that great I am. Before Abraham was, he said, I am. So thinking about that, that he was and always was and always will be that self-existent one, the all-powerful God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Yes, he is that great I am. And yet... Here, in the most intimate of settings, with his closest friends gathered around at at the most critical time in his human life, he changes the relationship. He builds a new type of relationship. He called each and every one of those men his friends. This is important on many levels because, remember, Up until this time in the the history of Israel and Judah, God was not a personal God. He was a national God. He dealt with the, the, the people as a nation. And very rarely, there are instances, but if you look at the history, you will see very rarely that he deal personally, one on one, as a personal friend. He was the Yahweh, the Elohim, the national God. And he was the God of the Israelites. If the king sinned, who paid the price? Remember? Everybody, right? And you know, sometimes it seems unfair. But even if it wasn't the king, if it was just some of the people over here hiding some stuff in their tent, who paid the price? Everybody. God was dealing with them as a nation, as a collective, together. To illustrate that, I want us to just go back to a very familiar story. When David ruled in Israel, in 1 Chronicles chapter 21, and verse 1, it says, Now Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. So David said to Joab and to the leaders of the people, go, number Israel from Beersheba to Dan and bring the number of them to me that I may know it. And Joab answered and said, may the Lord make his people a 100 times more than they are. Why do you need to do this? You don't need to count the people. The Lord can make these people 100 times more powerful than their current numbers. Why do you do this? He didn't, Job didn't want to follow this instruction. He knew that God had said, do not number the people. But my Lord King, are they not all my Lord's servants? Why does the Lord require this thing? Why should he be a cause of guilt in Israel? Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab. Therefore, Joab departed and went through all Israel and came to Jerusalem. And then Joab gave the sum of the number of the people to David. And all Israel had 1,100,000 men who drew the sword. And Judah had 470,000 men who drew the sword. But he did not count Levi and Benjamin among them, for the king's word was abominable To Joab Joab was still resisting, he was kind of following his his orders, but I'm just going to leave these guys out, maybe it'll make it better, but he didn't want to do it. He didn't want to follow the command of the king, and he knew better, he said so. He should have respectfully declined, right? Maybe it would have cost him his life maybe. Who knows? He might have persuaded David. And the other leaders, too, by their obstinance, saying, we're not doing it. If you want to do it, get on a donkey and go do it yourself. But they didn't. It says, and God was displeased with this thing. Therefore, he struck Israel. So David said to God, I have sinned greatly. Because I have done this thing, but now, I pray, take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. Then the Lord spoke to Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and tell David, saying, Thus says the Lord, I offer you three things. Choose one of them for yourself, that it may be, and may do it, that I may do it, rather, to you. And it wasn't really to him, either. So God came to David and said, "All right. Here's your choices. Choose for yourself either 3 years of famine or 3 months to be defeated by your foes with the sword of your enemies taking over you, or else 3 days the sword of the Lord and the plague in the land with the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the territory of Israel." Choose your poison. Right, Man, what a choice. To realize that your foolishness, your insistence, your sin had now brought this uh, awful choice on Israel and on him. Three years of famine, or three months of being defeated by their enemies, or three days of the sword of the Lord in the land. I find it interesting though, David's choice. He chose three days of the Lord's sword in the land, of the Lord himself bringing that punishment. He chose that. Why? Because he knew the Lord. He knew him. He kind of gambled here, I know God. I know that he is merciful and that he is gracious and that he might just repent as he's doing this. He might just have mercy on all the people and all of us. David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Please let me fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are very great, but do not let me fall into the hands of man. So the Lord sent a plague upon Israel and 70,000 men of Israel fell. God sent an angel to Jerusalem to destroy it. He was going to destroy the capital. There would be no Jerusalem today unless they, you know, rebuilt it. If his destroyer hadn't stopped As he was destroying, the Lord looked and relented of the disaster. He was merciful. He was gracious. And David gambled right, didn't he? He knew the way God was and who God was. And said to the angel who was destroying, It is enough. Now restrain your hand. And the angel of the Lord stood by the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. And David lifted his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord standing between the earth and heaven having his hand drawn having in his hand a drawn sword stretched out over Jerusalem and so David and the elders clothed in sackcloth fell on their faces and David said to God was it not I who commanded the people to be numbered I am the one who has sinned and done this evil but these sheep what have they done let your hand, I pray, O Lord, my God, be against me and my father's house, but not against your people, that they should be plagued. So, again, when we look at this story, we think, Man, it doesn't seem like God's very friendly. Look at what he did, and, and doesn't it seem a little unjust that the king forced this through and the people pay the price. I think that's partly right. But do you think that Joab was able to go out and in five minutes go count the people and then come back? This wasn't an instantaneous thing was it? This was a census. The people could have said we're not showing up. We're not filling in the forms. We're not going to have any part of this. They could have sent back wrong figures. They could have sabotaged the whole thing, if you think about it. But they didn't. Remember, I think perhaps this goes back to what Israel asked for in the beginning. I think we talked about this maybe last week. They asked for a king to rule over them instead of God. They wanted this separation. They wanted this distance from God. They didn't want to know God. And so, put a little barrier there. And were prepared to follow the king. Instead of following God. They chose this. They chose to fall under the leadership of man. They chose something other than being a friend of God. And on top of that, as always happens between God and man, they sinned. They all knew that this was against God's commandment and yet they sinned. As Isaiah says in Isaiah 59 and verse one, behold the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save nor his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. It is possible, isn't it, to be cut off from a friend. To have a friend and then lose that friend because of how we deal with one another. This was so often the case with Israel and Judah, who read the history of Israel, as I mentioned before, and of Judah. It becomes apparent that God was dealing with these people collectively. They distanced themselves. He distanced himself. This is just one example. God became, over time, a national God. Dealing with people in a remote way. And yet, it's so easy for us to forget, isn't it? That this is not how it all started. This was not how it was supposed to be. God says, I don't change. So if he wants to be a friend now, And he doesn't change. Didn't he always want to be a close, personal friend? There was a time when the great I Am was not a distant, national God, but rather a close, personal friend. In Genesis chapter 12 and verse 1, familiar with the story, it says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Get out from your country, from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you and in you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So Abraham departed as the Lord had spoken to him and Lot went with him and Abraham was 75 years old when he departed Haran. And as we know, this was the start of a very special relationship. A friendship unlike any that it had before between God and man. Very unique. Abram was special to God. He was God's friend. It started back in Haran and it would lead Abraham, to change his name from Abram to Abraham, and to endure hardships, to endure or to receive blessings, and to trust the relationship and the friendship with God. So much so that as we remember, he was willing to do whatever his friend asked him to do, including sacrifice his own son. Are we friends of God to that? level. I'm not sure I am. (laughs) That's hard, as we've talked about before. That is such a hard thing. But Abraham loved his friend. And his friend loved him. The almighty God was a friend. The God that we know as Isaac God of Isaac and Jacob, this all powerful being was a friend to Abraham. And of course, that friendship wasn't just Abraham, do whatever I say. You realize that, right? Because <laughs> that's not really a friendship, is it? The friendship that Abraham had was reciprocal. Such was their relationship that Abraham could ask things that no one else on earth could ask for and get away with it. Of course, I'm referring to the incident, a small little incident that happened in Genesis chapter 18. In Genesis chapter 18, we find Abraham finishing a meal with three men. One of them being God, the great I am himself. He'd come for dinner. How would you like that? You know, your spouse comes home and says, <laughs> I bumped into God on the <laughs> in the neighborhood and uh, he's coming for dinner. You've got about five minutes. Well, that's what happened. He knew him. He saw him from a distance. He knew who this was. He was his friend. God was his friend. God's friendship and love for Abraham was evident. Verse 16, after they finished their their morsel of food, the man rose from there and looked towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to send them on their way, just walking along with them. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing, since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed by him. For I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they keep the way of the Lord, to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham, what he has spoken to him. It's an easy to overlook phrase, I think, this, for I have known him. I have known him. But the word known here, it, it has a lot of meanings. But in its context, it implies an understanding of his character. That God knew him. That he knew the kind of person he was. He knew the the morals that he had. He knew that faced with certain situations, how he would react. Whether they be good or whether they be bad. He was known by God. For a specific purpose, right? Well, in order to learn about Abraham, he would have become intimate friends. They would have to share some experiences together, they'd have to talk together. To share a life together, just like we do. After all, he was going to be the father of the faithful. God needed to know this guy was the right guy. So God chose to tell him what he was about to do. He chose to tell him his close personal friend, just just like you and I would, right? Ron, I'm going over to Oklahoma City and. Uh, I've had a report of them, and I'm going to see if I can nuke them. Okay. That would have been Ron's response. No matter how many text messages or how long the message is, or the email, in fact, Ron just says, okay. (laughs) But I'm going to share a big thing that I'm going to do. I'm going to share with my friends something that I've got to take care of, whether it be good or whether it be bad because friends share with one another. The Lord said, because of the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and because of their sin is very grave, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it that has come to me and if not, I will know. And then the men turned away from there and went towards Sodom. And Abraham stood still before the Lord, and Abraham came near and said, um, Would you destroy the righteous with the wicked? Who do you think you are? Don't question me, Ron. I know what's going on in Oklahoma City. You have no idea. That's not at all what he said, is it? He heard his friend. And his friend was asking, well, Are you going to destroy... The righteous with the wicked? Okay, well, tell me what you're thinking. Suppose there were 50 righteous within the city. Would you destroy the place and not spare it for 50 righteous? Interesting, he starts with 50, right? Hmm. Be it far from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? You know, I I don't know whether this was a test, but even if it was, you have to have a pretty close relationship to be tested in this way. To have the confidence that he's not gonna just strike you down for defying his will for defying what God has purposed to do. So the Lord said, okay, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sakes. And as we know, of course, Abraham whittles this all the way down to 10. And then there's not even 10 in the city. There's really just one. And he's a little dodgy too. But he saves him and his daughters. Lot and his daughters tried to save his wife. But Abraham has this relationship. As we know, Abraham was called the friend of God. Such a relationship that he could negotiate God question maybe some of his actions. Why are you doing this? This isn't like you. That God should in fact judge all the men and women of this city as individuals. That's almost in there. Because in this negotiation you realize Abraham brings it down to individual, a few individuals. Would you really To really destroy those ten. The relationship that God wants to have is an individual relationship with each and one of us. And the great I am agrees, as I said, and agrees with this negotiation. Such is the relationship. God saved Lot, he saved his daughters. He specifically went in there, he told his guys to go in there, get them out, and save the individual. God will do things for his friends, is what I get out of this. God will do things for his friends when they ask him. Just like you and I would, when our friends ask us, For help. He will listen to their requests. And he will do everything he can for them. Short of unrighteousness, of course. In Isaiah chapter 41 and verse 8. It says, but you, Israel, are my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen. The descendants of Abraham, my friend. And also referring to the same passage, James says this in chapter uh, 2 and verse 23. And the scripture was fulfilled which says Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness and he was called the friend of God. And so we come all the way back to that upper room in Jerusalem with the disciples gathered around in a close, intimate setting. His friends. And the friend of Abraham is sitting in the midst of his new friends. And he knows what's coming. He knows the incredible trial that he's going to have to endure. He knows the price of his friendship. Have you ever wondered, did Jesus take strength To do what he did. Not because necessarily just because he was obeying his father's commands. But rather because he was saving his friends. Because that's what he said, isn't it? There is no greater love that a man can have. Let's take a look at that again. In John 15 verse 12. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no man than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends. If you do whatever I command you, no longer do I call you servants. For a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I've heard from my father have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain, and that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give you. These things I command you, that you love one another. Jesus was following his Father's commands. He was following his own plan of salvation. But I really think when it comes down to that moment, when his body is being torn apart, and when he's being nailed to that stake, He's probably not thinking about instructions. He's thinking about saving his friends. Because that's what friends do. For one another. Jesus is saying, I love you guys. I love you. You are my friends. I am doing all of this for you. I am laying down my life for you, to save you, to save each and every one of you so that I can have you with me forever, so that we can share a life together, so that we can continue when all this is done with laughing together, enjoying one another's company, poking fun at each other every once in a while, challenging one another, growing together as friends not just disciples, not just Abraham or Moses or all those others that we read about. It's not just for them, it's for us. Jesus is our friend. The great I am is our friend. We do so well to remember that, to remember who our friend is. His love was so great that he also laid down his life for you, for me, his friends. God has always wanted a personal relationship with us. Always wanted that personal relationship. He always wanted to be our friend. His whole plan of salvation started with Abraham, his friend. That's the model, that's the pattern. And if we are of Christ, we're of Abraham's seed. We are in the faith of Abraham. We are friends. Over time, this relationship was lost. Over time, we separated ourselves from God. We didn't want that friendship, I guess. He became a national God. He became distant. But then at the most critical time in his plan, not only did he change Passover, but he also changed the relationship back to what he wanted all along, for us to be friends. So, how good a friend are we? How good a friend are we? Do we spend time with our friend? Do we help our friend? Do we read what he's written to us? Do we follow his example? Do we open our hearts to him? Do we share our deepest feelings? Do do we share our experiences, our hopes? Do we let him in? Now I was driving on the, on the way here, and I was thinking about this. And I, I'm thinking about it in regards to myself. Is Jesus a friend that we visit with on Sabbath? But then we just go about our workday week in between. You know, so many of us, we're busy, and I'm not being critical of anyone. But we don't always communicate with everyone in our congregation every week. Maybe we only see one another and talk to one another on the Sabbath. Well, that's, that's okay. There's certain people that we gel with. There's certain people that are, we're closer to. We're compatible with. But is that okay for Jesus? Is that the kind of relationship we should have with Jesus, our friend. I think you would agree that's not. You know, there's all kinds of friendships. We have friendships sometimes that are forged in work. You know, we kind of have friends in work, but when we leave that job, we particularly mean it, but we move away from those friends, don't we? We maybe remember them from time to time, bump into them at the store or around town. And then there are friends that, regardless of the circumstance, we stay connected. There's something about that relationship that you cannot see them for six months, a year, two years, ten years, and the minute you're back together, you pick it right back up where you left off friends, deep friends, and we have that spiritual connection. But in in spite of all these positive situations, we've also had some negative, haven't we? We've had friends betray us, reveal things that we shared in secret, and they shared with everybody else. We've had betrayals, sometimes accidental. Sometimes on purpose, we've all had negative friends. Betrayed, whether deliberately or accidentally. And as a result, maybe we're a little guarded with friends. Maybe we are not willing to be quite so open as we once were. That may be the case with one another. But there is absolutely no reason for us to worry about God, our friend. About Jesus, our friend. We know this. He will never reveal anything to anyone that we have given in confidence to him. He never would do that. His relationship with us is precious to him. He wants a personal relationship that we can share together. One who never betrays us, who will never take this intimate knowledge and turn it against us, will never criticize us in a hurtful way. He will never forget us, you know he calls us a lot, he sends us lots of emails, do you get emails? Spiritual emails. God's word, his communication with us in prayer. He reaches out to us. He wants friendship with us. He is always there whenever we need advice, whenever we have a joy to share or a sorrow to endure. You know, sometimes when I've got some trouble in my life for whatever reason, a challenge, you know, because of the time difference, I'll sometimes look at the clock and I'm like, I'm going to call mom and dad because they're up and about already. But sometimes I don't have that luxury either. Jesus is always available. Always available for us to share a problem and ask for help, ask for guidance. In Proverbs chapter 18 and verse 24 it says, a man who has friends must himself be friendly, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. That is Jesus, a close, personal Jesus. In 1 John, in chapter four and verse seven, John talks about this friendship. He talks about it in a little different way. He uses love and knowledge as a simile for friendship, the friendship that we have with Jesus. And he also gives us a very important lesson on how we are to deepen our relationship with God our friend. He says, beloved, let's love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who, who loves is born of God, and knows God. There's that knows word again, but knows God. But has a relationship, you have to have a relationship with God to know him. You can know of him by reading a book, but to know him, requires a relationship, requires communication. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this, the love of God was manifest toward us that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love has been perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his Spirit. You know, we don't physically see him, we wish we did. We're we're corporeal beings, We, we like to see our friends. So it's a little bit of a challenge that we don't see him. At least with our eyes. At least not that you guys have told me about. If anybody wants to share. But still we see him with our spiritual mind, with our spiritual eyes. We see him in the world that he's created. We see them in one another, in so many different ways. You know, there aren't many friends, in fact, I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that you do not have any friends that have shared their spirit with you, right? I mean, if they are, I imagine they've got a glassy look because they're not home. But God has shared his spirit with us. A portion of himself with us. In us. He says, and we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son. As Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him. And he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God, and God in him. Love has been perfected amongst us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. You know, that's that's a really curious phrase, that we have boldness in the day of judgment, because of this relationship that we have with God, because of the love that we have together. We can have boldness. Now, I don't necessarily understand everything that that means. But it's kind of interesting that it ties back to Abraham. Because on the day of judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah, he had boldness to enter into some negotiation here. To save the righteous, if possible. And he was able to affect the will of God because of that friendship, because of that relationship. So we can have boldness with the great I am, our friend, on behalf of a brother that's in need, on behalf of families that are hurting today, right now, that we know and that we love, we can have boldness to ask for God's help, to ask for his intervention to ask a friend for a favor. That's what Jesus said. Whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he'll do it. He will do it. And of course, we don't ask for our friends. We don't ask our friends. Ron, would you give me a million dollars, please? I know you got it. Okay. We don't ask inappropriately, but we ask according to his will, because we know his will, because he shared it with us, because we're his friends. So we can have boldness in the day of judgment. Because, he continues, as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Because fear involves torment, But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. It's a beautiful passage. There is no fear in love, is there? And the love that we have with our deepest, truest friend is completely free from fear. We've been made perfect in love. God's love is working in us. And with Jesus, there is no fear. We don't have to worry about what he thinks about us. Because he loves us. We share that friendship. Guys, we can let down this macho thing that we've got going on with Jesus. We can just be the little boy that I know you all are inside. And we can just lean on his chest, just like John himself did. Completely open, vulnerable to our closest, deepest friend. Ladies, this is the man that you've been looking for all your life. He will never leave you insecure. He will never leave you in doubt. He will always love you. He will always listen to every word you say. He will always be there for you. We can completely trust him. And spiritually. And physically. This is the man that we can all rest in. Have our hopes in. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. And he is so very near because he's in us. I think he has made inside of us a shape that can only be filled by him. can only be filled by this friend, by himself. And so many people in this world try and fill that hole with all kinds of friendships and idols, idolizing other people and the ideas of other people. We cannot find this kind of friendship in our spouse or in others, no matter how close the relationship is. It is a very specific friendship that we've been made for. But it's not easy. We are his friends. He laid down his life for us. All he asks in return is that we lay down our lives for him. It's not much, is it? But the reward will be eternal.